Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome, everyone, back to the broadcast. Special guest today. First, I'm David Woods, Brown Report Online, UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network. But joining me today, live from Las Vegas, the LA Times, Ben Bolch. Ben, how are you? I'm great, Dave. I'm actually looking out, and I was thinking about this. I'm looking out at either Lake Mead or Lake Las Vegas, and I don't know what the difference is, and I don't know which one I'm looking at. Do you have any clue about the difference between the two? Lake Mead or Lake Las Vegas? So I'll, I'll full disclosure, I've never heard of Lake Las Vegas, so I'm going to assume it's Lake Mead. Okay. So maybe Lake Las Vegas is like... Well, let's see if we can triangulate. What, where are we <laughs> staying, Ben, that you can see either lake from where you are? Well, I'm not sure if I want the groupies to come start hanging out here. I guess the question is, how far off the strip are we right now? We are a half hour away. In fact, every time I make the drive, I'm just like, why am I doing this to myself? But no, the reason I'm... Go ahead. <laughs> no, no. If I remember correctly, you did this last year as well. Yes, it's become something of a tradition for me. If I cannot get a room rate below, let's say... 200 on the strip, I will stay here where I'm guaranteed to get it in the 125 to 150 range. And it's actually a very nice hotel. It's the Westin Lake Las Vegas. Wow. Okay. Well, that might be a that might be a disclosure on which lake you're near. Because if it's the Westin yes. Lake Las Vegas, I feel like you should be able to see Lake Las Vegas from there. Yes, but then what is Lake Mead? And isn't that nearby as well? Well, Lake Mead is nearby, but it's slowly going away. So, you know, who knows? You know, I think the, the water levels are now at the point where you can't even get a boat on it. So, <laughs> you know, whatever. What? Here's the thing, though, Ben. We are recording a podcast about UCLA right now. And we're talking about lakes, which is fun. We like it. Um, well, you know, I got to say, I, I've, I've listened to enough broadcasts to know that you and Tracy spend at least the first five <laughs> minutes on a tangent, right? So I figured I would have to fit in with that fine tradition. It is. It is very nice. Uh, I'll be honest. I, I'm mostly just bummed that I'm not in Vegas this year. Uh, we, we had a we had a good time last year. Um, all right, Ben. Uh, last night, uh, let's just set the um, last night. No, yesterday afternoon, nooner. Uh, UCLA um, beat uh, Colorado eighty to sixty nine in the uh, first real round of the Pac twelve tournament. Let's just ignore what happens on Wednesday. It's fake. Doesn't matter. Uh, the first real round of the Pac twelve tournament. Uh, UCLA beat Colorado, uh, and uh, Oregon beat Washington State, setting up a third game between the Bruins and the Ducks. Uh, first, just wanted to get your thoughts on the game last night um, and how you thought UCLA did. In the first game of uh, whatever we want to call this period, the post-Clark period, uh, what did you think of the uh, of the Bruins' performance? You know, I thought it was good, but you know, to be honest, I don't think they played particularly well until the last five minutes of the game. I mean, they were down by one, and let's give Colorado a lot of credit. They played UCLA super tough in all three games, and I think if you looked at the a play-by-play, they might have been ahead for the aggregate of 120 minutes in those three games. They might have been ahead for, like, I don't know, 80 minutes or so. They, they could have won all three of those games. But, you know, UCLA did its thing down the stretch. It got the, a couple of steals, some clutch baskets. The high may give and go with Tiger was, was awesome. And then, uh, you know, the big story was Amari Bailey's breakout. Uh, 26 points, a career high. And they really needed every point uh, to win that game. So that was exactly what they needed. They needed somebody to step up. 
Jalen Clark out. I thought their defense was okay. Got really good late, but you know, not not super great throughout the game. Colorado was making a lot of threes, um, but on the whole, I would I would give them probably a B plus for that for that effort. Yeah, I was kind of in the same boat. Um, I think the 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 thing with me with that offense was it was a it was their best offensive production against Colorado, and some people have been like, yeah, well, Tad Boyle spotted them four points, and it's like, yeah, <laughs> true, but. Take away those four points, it's still 76 in a, I don't know, 65 possession game, something like that. Um, and it made me, the thing I wonder is, so David Singleton didn't have a good game, but him being out there, Colorado had to defend out to three in a way that they didn't necessarily have to do as much in the first couple of games. And I wonder if that, if the, 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 the way that Bailey and Singleton complement each other is perhaps superior to the way Bailey and Clark complement each other offensively because they're, you know, Singleton's a different player from Bailey, but Bailey and Clark are kind of similar offensively. They're both slasher drivers primarily. Um, so that was kind of the one thing where I was like, that part might've been a little bit better, but the, everything else, I mean, it was very, uh, to your point, very similar to the first two Colorado games, you know, just Tad Boyle's a really good coach and he had this team schemed really well, you know, shutting down on Hawkes, doubling him whenever he had any opportunity in the post, you know, really playing denial on him. So I walk away from that and being like, well, to pull out that win by 11 points, I mean, that's um, a little bit less than the margin in the first game, but only because UCLA just uh, took it over in the last five minutes. But, uh, overall, probably a slightly better performance than UCLA had uh, against Colorado on the road. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, and one little quick aside, as I, as I like to do, uh, I ran into uh, Tad Boyle after the game at Italy. I, di- I didn't say anything to him, but he had calmed down by then. He was, uh, you know, the, the red had, had left his face. He sat down for a nice meal at one of the uh, more upscale uh, nooks inside of Italy. So it's good to see that he was fully recovered from that. Uh, tirade he went on late in the game but uh one other thing i thought that you know we were all watching closely was how are will mcclendon and dylan andrews going to do off the bench and i you know i i was hoping for a little bit more from them yeah mick Mick cronin said uh pointed out that will had four rebounds i think maybe all in the first half and you know dylan played 12 minutes i think he finished with one point but you know when when uh will spotted up for that three-pointer i was thinking man he really needs to make this as a confidence boost because I think he came into that game shooting like .087 on the season, and it was way off. I think it went over the rim and hit the backboard. Yeah. So that was that was a little bit of a downer from a UCLA perspective because he really is going to need to make some shots for them to go anywhere in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I think so. Um, and the thing is, he had three shots in this game, and he passed up. I think it was two opportunities where he probably should have shot and didn't. And that's honestly more concerning to me than the misses is in this offense, you've got to be doing the right thing. Like, I don't know, 98% of the time, like you've got to make the right pass, make the right shot because it is, you know, it's not, it's not Arizona free flowing basketball. It's not, you know, you, you, it's designed for smart players. It's designed for players who are going to make the right choice. And when he, you know, hands off a live grenade to Jaime with four seconds left on the shot clock, when he should be the one taking the shot, it, it, it's better to miss a shot than to make the wrong choice in a, in in this sort of offense. Um, and so you, the thing is, my worry with the shooting is it is affecting his confidence because the thing is, he, he plays really well in a lot of de- different aspects. He's a good passer. He plays really good defense. And he... Rebounds way better than he should for his size, um, but I just want him to make a couple of shots so he s- continues to play with a little bit of confidence because that's what he's going to need going forward if he's going to play. You know, a guy playing 16 minutes has to be able to make the occasional open shot, and right now it's not even that he's missing everything from three. Uh, everything he takes to the basket has almost no chance either um, because he's you know, torquing his body weirdly to try to avoid contact or try to get contact. It's all very strange to watch, but he's not even drawing iron on his layups. It's Yeah, it's and, and here's another 
thing. You know, when he's on the court with either Mac or, or, or to, to a bigger extent, Kenny Nuba, that's basically going three on five on offense, right? Yeah. Because he's not a threat. Kenny Nuba is not a threat to do anything but grab a rebound and have a putback. Um, you know, why they even throw him an entry pass at this point of the season is kind of uh, boggles my mind quite a bit. But, yeah, he just has to be, you know, somebody you have to defend. You can't just have him on the court and, and they can just, you know, sag off him and, 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 and concentrate on everybody else. So he really, you know, not to be too repetitive, but he's got to get some offense going. Uh, to, to be a, a player that they can rely on uh, for big minutes. And, and the same for Dylan Andrews. I, I like his uh, offense a little bit better. He's, he, he can slash. He can shoot. Um, you know, I was expecting him to be a little bit more involved than he was yesterday. And I, I'd like to get your opinion on this. I actually think Dylan Andrews might be the second best defender on this team behind Jalen. That's an interesting question. Um, so for me, I would probably say um – well, I should, I, if, I should if we're talking just wing, wing, wing players, yeah, wing, wing guard players. defenders, I would say yeah. mid-season I would have given it to Amari Bailey hands down, but I think he's fallen off uh, in the last couple of weeks. Um, his on-ball defense has not been as good. I would say Andrews, from a disruptive standpoint, he's pretty close uh, to number two because his energy and the heat he can put on the ball is it's honestly different from even stuff that Jalen can do because. Whatever uh, Jalen has in terms of athleticism, Andrews, that like quickness um, in front of the ball is just it's really rare. Um, it's it, the comparison that people keep coming to and the right one for uh, my money based on UCLA is it's Darren Collison as a freshman um, and Collison as a freshman. That was the uh, that was the best defensive version of Collison. And um, that's what Andrews looks like when he's out there. Just. Cat-like quickness, um, and it's, uh, you know, in this game, I thought um, he, he had the unfortunate thing where he was in, and whenever he was in, it seemed like UCLA was pressing, and the press was just not effective for a lot of other reasons that had little to do with Andrews. Um, not enough height, not enough length, um, maybe not enough intensity from some guys in the middle line. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you on Andrews. I think he's probably one of the top, you know, because I could go either way on McClendon. I think Andrews is probably one of the top three or four wing defenders on the team right now. Um, and then for McClendon, honestly, your argument there, it makes me think maybe there is some value to starting Will instead of David because if you're bringing him in with the bench guys, you're often bringing him in with Mac or Kenny. And to your point, then it's three on five. Is it better to go four on five with the starters and then four on five when the new center comes in, if Singleton comes in with them, then five on five, but then three on five the next time around. Um, yeah, yeah, and it was really illuminating after the game that Coach Cronin acknowledged that he had thought about that and was probably going to do it, except for he he, he mentioned uh, Dave's loyalty to the program and how much he meant, and, uh, you know, I guess... He, he, he kind of didn't say this, but it was almost like, you know, it's a badge of honor to keep start, keep starting him whenever he has the opportunity. But I think, you know, today might be a good a good uh, chance to go the other way, see what it looks like with Will. Maybe being on the floor with those guys who are going to demand so much attention is going to just leave so many wide open shots and he can knock a couple down and kind of change the whole trajectory of his season. So. I would be, if I was Mick Cronin, I'd be willing to tinker with that adjustment and put Will McClendon in the starting lineup today. Love it. Love it. Yeah, I mean, why not? Because I think uh, at this point, you know, win the Pac-12 tournament, great. If you don't, it's one more loss, and I don't know. I know there's a lot of speculation that they might try to drop UCLA to like a three seed. I don't see it. Um, I think they'll be a solid two in the West. So... What the heck? Why not try something different? Because you've still got essentially two experimental games left, maybe, if, before you actually have to play the games that matter. Um, so give it a shot. What the heck? Yeah, and we, and we know that Dave is going to be 100% okay with it. I mean, there's no more of a team player that I've ever covered than David Singleton. He would be 100% okay with it. And, you know, he could add that spark off the bench with that with the three-point shooting that uh, would really complement that second unit and really make them a more kind of well-balanced team with the rotations and just, uh, you know, always having more capable scoring options on the floor at one, at one point. Yeah, and I'll be honest, it's testing my um, 
obvious uh, I'm fully in the bag for David Singleton, but it still tests my desire to see him on the floor as much as possible when he's playing over 35 minutes a game. Um, he had to play 35 yesterday, and for a guy who's really upped his defensive intensity this year as well as you know being the primary three-point shooter, it's a lot to ask uh, for him to play 35-plus. Um because if you remember, I mean, before this year, his conditioning was also like always kind of a like, you know, deep in the back line, but always a little bit of a question mark whether, you know, he could sustain that for 35 plus minutes. So, you know, if 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 he's in off the bench, it's unlikely he's going to have to play that many minutes. Um, and so I would. Yeah, I was pro putting Singleton in the starting lineup before this last game. I'm not sure I'm anti yet. I still think I'd probably lean towards that but um something that gets him to closer to 30 minutes instead of 35 i think would be ideal yeah and here's a a small little nugget that i uh you know they restored locker room access yesterday for the first time since 2019 it was the first time i'd been in the locker room with ucla players in basically four years which just seems insane right and it's uh, right uh, you know, a comment on, on where we are with media access, uh, particularly post-COVID. But uh, David Singleton had a, a, a bag of ice on his, like, arm-slash-elbow area. You know, he took that charge in the game and also got completely bowled over on that uh, one play where he was on the wing uh, there where I was like, oh, my God, is he going to, like, survive this? But, uh, I, you know, he said he's okay, but just something to watch. You know, he, he had a, a pretty big ice bag on, on that arm, so... Uh, a little thing to watch today, injury-wise, in addition to uh, Oregon's Infali in Dante, who left that game uh, with what looked like a serious ankle injury, but I attended the Oregon postgame, and uh, Dan Altman said he's, he was moving better, and he thinks he's going to be okay today. So, you know, we want these teams to be as yeah. close to full strength as possible to have the best matchup and, and you know, fans see their team at full strength. and. You know, uh, without uh, obviously Jalen Clark won't be there, but I think uh, beyond that, the team should be relatively at full strength. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and you know, it's interesting with um, <clears throat> with uh, with Singleton, um, and and this is like kind of a general thing on Colorado. Actually, um, I really like that program, um, but going back to like the Evan Batty years. It's just that they're not a dirty team, but a team full of hacks. Like, it just seems like there's <laughs> always dudes just running full speed into other players uh, during the games against Colorado. And I think part of it is they're a tough team, but also part of it is, like, maybe not, like, the highest level talent. Um, and so they don't have that, like, high-level athletic body control, and they're just running into dudes constantly. Like, Singleton took... I think it was three full speed hits in that game. Like he was playing football. Um, and it's just, you know, some of that's him being a tough player, tough, hard nosed, the whole thing. But some of it is just like that one where he got actually hurt, where he was on the floor, kind of writhing in pain for a little bit, where he pump faked on the three and the Colorado player. Okay. If you've got like elite body control, the whole thing, you can kind of stop and maybe bump the guy, but you're not going to like, but it was, it was a tackle. Like it was, uh, you know, he, he, he was coming in for the big hit. He was playing safety. And, uh, anyway, um, Colorado, uh, just as another aside, cause we like asides, Ben, uh, <laughs> Colorado, I think, uh, speaking to the fact that they were up on UCLA in the second halves of each of these three games and also, uh, what they have coming in, in terms of the recruiting class and what they could retain from this year, they're going to be pretty darn good next year. Yeah, and, and uh, I, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Is it Hammond, the the, the, yeah, yeah. the guy who was running the show? He, I, I like the way he runs his team better than K.J. Simpson. I thought they were a lot more cohesive, less turnover prone, and their offensive spacing was just uh, really on point yesterday, and, and that got them so many open threes and really gave them a chance at the, at the huge upset. So that's going to be a decision they're going to have to make. Who's going to be the primary playmaker for this team? Because now I think they've got multiple options. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, that's enough about yesterday. Uh, today, UCLA takes on Oregon, um, 6 p.m. It's the first game of the doubleheader semifinal. Uh, after that, it'll be a rematch of Arizona-ASU. After they both advanced um, uh, <laughs> from their bizarre games uh, in the nightcap yesterday, 
But uh, Oregon, uh, UCLA has beaten them twice. Uh, the first game was honestly pretty competitive, considering um, that Oregon was down like seven scholarship players. Um, they they played UCLA really tough in that first game. The second game was one of the better games UCLA played um, in the last couple of months. Uh, they won, I think it ended up being by nine, but they had firm control of the game in the last, uh, I don't know, 18 minutes or so. Um, what's your what's your sense of this? I mean, this is one where I'm always concerned about Oregon's athletes. Um, I don't think they're as athletic this year as they've been in the past, but without Jalen Clark, this is one that I'm a little bit concerned about. Yeah, I mean, to me, Oregon's a little bit like Colorado with just vastly superior athletes. I mean, they can when they're on, they can shoot the heck out of the ball. And then the big thing they have that uh, Colorado doesn't have is literally a big thing within Folly Dante as an elite post player. Um, and that's going to put the onus on a Dembona to not get into foul trouble because um, I don't know if Kenny Nuba is, is hurt. I know he had some growing and some other stuff going on. Uh, he didn't play at all yesterday, which is a little bit of a departure for Mick Cronin's rotation. He's usually the first big off the bench, and it was Mac Etienne getting uh, the backup big minutes yesterday. So, he may not even be available. So, uh, you know, that, that's going to put a, a double huge onus on, on a Dembona to not get two fouls in the first eight minutes and, and really kind of hamstring uh, UCLA and let Dante get going inside, presuming he's available to play, because that, that could really swing this game in Oregon's favor in a big way. Yeah, and that, that's uh, one thing we didn't touch on about the Colorado game was just Mac at the end now in, um, I want to say... I don't know, the last couple of weeks, has started to look a little bit more mobile. Um, I don't think, I, I'm with you, I, I tend to think it's probably some sort of injury with Nuuba, maybe lingering uh, trouble. But if there was a time for Nuuba to start to take a little bit of a back seat, last few weeks make sense, because Etienne, you know, starting with, um, essentially starting in February, he started to play a little bit more consistently, Um more consistent minutes. And then in March, he's looked a little bit more mobile defensively. Um, and that was probably my main issue with him in the early part of the season with the knee brace on. He didn't look like the same player we saw as a, you know, a high school super senior uh, playing his freshman year uh, when he looked pretty mobile. You know, he looked like a guy who could get out and move. And it, if everyone remembers before the season, uh, Mick Cronin was talking about him potentially playing the four at times. Um, and, I, I don't see that, but him playing, you know, last night against Col or yesterday afternoon against Colorado. I'm going to keep calling it last night. But <laughs> okay. I'm not even in Vegas with the time dilation. I'm just, you know, free, free. Well, this is, the time, this is the time of year where all the games run together in your mind, right? Oh, so my God. I, I forgive you, Dave. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm getting older. I'm getting ancient. Um, but, uh, yeah. So Mac Etienne, um, you know, I, he's playing better basketball of late, so it's not, it's not the, the absolute disaster that it would have been maybe a month ago if uh, Nwuba's out for a little bit, which is also, just as another side note, uh, imagine saying those words like two years ago. Oh, it's, it, it might be a nightmare if Kenny Nwuba's out. Like that's, <laughs> I mean, what a, what, a, what a development for that guy. Yeah, I mean, when I, when I look at these two backup bigs, I mean, Kenny Nwuba, let's give Darren Sabino a lot of credit because... You know, two years ago when he came into the games, uh, I think UCLA fans were just like holding their breath that, oh, yeah. that their team was not going to was gonna, you know not going to get blown off the floor for those minutes. But he 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 really contributed to some wins against Arizona on the road, and then in the in the in that epic game against Michigan, coming in there and banging bodies with Hunter Dickinson. Uh, you know, in those types of matchups, he's still very good, and I would prefer him to Mac Etienne. But there's no question Mac Etienne's skill set is a lot more diverse, particularly on the offensive end where he can hit face-up jumpers. He's got some moves around the basket. Uh, he can get the putbacks just like Kenny can uh, and, and probably is a, is a better and more active rebounder. So for my money, if I could choose between one or the two, uh, I would go with Mac unless, you know, it's one of those kind of big, big, uh, stiff uh, seven-footers that's not mobile and then Kenny can certainly hang with them defensively. Yeah, and if I'm looking, uh, so the the Oregon game at Oregon, Nwuba played 12 minutes. Uh, Etienne actually played more. He played two minutes more. Um, 
so you know it's not and i if i remember correctly etienne played pretty well in that game uh neither of them scored uh nuuba fouled out in those 12 minutes so this might be a better matchup for etienne anyway um so that's something to consider as well uh this would also so from a NCAA tournament standpoint, uh, which is probably the most important thing to kind of contextualize all these games now, Oregon, I think right now they are hovering right around being a quad one neutral site win. Uh, I want to say they are uh, in the 40s. Yeah, so they're 44 right now. If UCLA beats them but doesn't beat them too badly, this would go in as a quad one neutral site win which is significant because the selection committee is stupid. Um, and so they don't look at the net itself. They're just counting quad wins. Um, so this would put, if UCLA wins this game, it would make them eight and four in quad one games, which is frankly at this point, very comparable to the rest of the contenders for one and two seeds. It would also give UCLA another data point in this post Clark period of, Hey, we can still play quality basketball without Jalen Clark. So don't, you know, don't drop us, guys. Um, so that is something for UCLA. Uh, and then, you know, depending on who ends up in the title game, if UCLA wins this, if it's Arizona, that's obviously another quad one opportunity. If it's ASU, I think they are. So they're 60 right now. If Arizona State advances past Arizona, if they win in any fashion, that could put them close to a top 50. Um, and yes, it's stupid that we have to think about this, but it is the nature of the game. Um, and so if Arizona state beats Arizona by let's say 10, uh, they could be hovering close to quad one territory for UCLA. So Ben, first question, how stupid is the net rankings? Okay. Picture this. It's Friday afternoon. When a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's only a kick. A jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Uh, pretty stupid. <laughs> well, here's the thing that's the dumbest about it, uh, you know, Seth Davis was saying, and I don't know how accurate this is, oh, yeah, but man. Seth Davis... Let's get into it. <laughs> Seth Davis was basically saying, like, oh, you know, you're citing all these things that the, the NCAA selection, uh, tournament selection committee doesn't even really care that much about, because I was, you know, uh, in my story when, when Mick was complaining about the early bracket reveal, uh, you know, there were so many metrics to look at. There was Ken Palm, there was Sagarin, there was the net, uh, just, just to name a few, and then, like, you know... Uh, Seth Davis shot back on Twitter about, oh, you know, let's not uh, cite all these metrics that are, are meaningless and, and, the, and the NCAA tournament selection committee doesn't even really look at. And I'm like, really? They don't look at the one metric designed exclusively to help them. And I'm not saying they have to use that uh, by the letter, but like, come on. I mean, it's supposed to be their number one tool to kind of sort out teams. And he's basically saying, no, it's not that important. So that was baffling to me. Yeah, well, and uh, the thing is, he thinks that's a, um, because the commentary is uh, they they should be looking at these sorts of metrics, because first, they purport that they are. I mean, it's in literally the criteria that they said when they were installing the net rankings was, it's going to be one of our main tools for looking at, uh, for, for determining the bracket. So one, they should be doing it. They're, they're, they're not doing what they said they were going to do if they're not doing that. And second... Um, even if they're not, obviously, um, there's there's and this is, you know, historic, uh, there's more uh, predictive um, uh, quality to the actual rankings than simply counting the the number of wins in particular quads, which is essentially what Seth was saying, is that, you know, they're looking at, you know, 
uh, the the quad wins, but not necessarily where they are in the rankings. And which is, if you think about what the quads are actually describing, it's very stupid because the quads are just a description of what the rankings are. Like it's it's a it's right. a way to categorize the rankings for uh, essentially an easily easily digestible format. The problem is uh, these people not being, I don't know. Uh, a lot of them might be like, I, I'm not a numbers guy. I just want to, you know, look at who wins or whatever. It doesn't really matter. But the end result is that they are using one of the, like, descriptive categories to uh, to the detriment of the actual ranking itself. Um, because UCLA in the net is very similar to UCLA in Ken Palm. It's very similar to UCLA in uh, T-Rank. It's very similar to UCLA in all of these efficiency rating systems. Because UCLA is highly rated by all these predictive uh, engines, these these things that will say, hey, these are the best teams in the country and the team's most likely to win. People always ask, well, why is Tennessee still one of the you know uh, teams most likely to win the NCAA tournament? Because they're really good in all these efficiency metrics. And whether you think it or not, blowing out a bunch of teams in November and December does matter for how good your team is. And, and not just it matters for these engines. These things are designed to predict results. It's designed to describe what the future is going to hold. It's like that's what these things are designed to do. Um, and so for for UCLA to be highly ranked in that is, you know, that's UCLA is a very good team. But um, Seth Davis, because this is this is a sub- subject that's near and dear to my heart, Ben. Uh, Seth Davis, I I don't know how much of it is just. You know, he wants to be, you know, he's he's affiliated with CBS at some level. And so it's, you know, kind of protecting the interests of the network and all that kind of stuff. And frankly, I'm affiliated with CBS at some level. Um, But it's just he just comes across as such a dunderhead when he's talking about it. It's all just uh, well. And it's it's constant. um, uh, Well, you don't know what you're talking about. And I do. And it's like, well, yeah, you might know what you're talking about because you're describing the thinking of idiots and you yourself are, are you know, not not the brightest tool in the shed. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, you know, the funny thing about Seth is his whole platform, uh, which he tweets out every morning, I think, is be kind. Right. Yeah. Please and be so kind. please be kind. And so I, I love that. You know, I think we all should be. We all should take a deep breath before we react to anything and, and think about how it impacts other people but you know that being said he's being quite a little bit of a hypocrite here to my uh way of thinking just that he's being so unnecessarily antagonistic and i don't know if you saw his exchange with ken pomeroy a few days ago uh oh yeah no it's the the tone is just he's being a a jerk for no reason yeah and he wanted to be on both sides of the predictive analytics right when it when it benefited his argument he was uh against it He's like, oh, you know, nobody looks at Ken Palm and predictive metrics. And then, you know, when Jalen Clark goes down, he's like, well, you know, you, you, you can't think they're going to be nearly as good without him. So, you know, now they have to be dinged for that. So he basically wants to talk out of both sides of his mouth and, and fit any argument to, uh, with his narrative, which I think that was what bothered me the most about the whole thing. Yeah, and he's been uh, so for my my problem with Seth goes back a long way because he he does he's done this constantly and as much as like I'm not a big like oh there's a media bias or whatever but this is a guy who you know I've 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 uh, I got Bruin Report Online blocked by him back in 2012 um, in my younger days in my in my um, fiery younger days Ben um, I don't think you could be any more fiery than you are right now Dave <sighs> man I've mellowed. Um, but he's he's constantly had this thing where it's chirping at UCLA fans, especially. And this is not it's not a bias thing, but there's a it's a here's where I come down on a lot of this stuff is like there's a lazy thing going on, which is the lazy thing to say about UCLA is that the fans suck. That uh, first, you know, going back like 10 or 15 years, it was a lot of the expectations of UCLA fans. They're out of control. They want to fire every coach all the time. That's kind of dissipated because it's obviously untrue and becoming more untrue over time. Um, I mean, they let Steve Alford coach for six years. Like that's if you let Steve Alford coach your program for six years, you don't have high expectations, right? That's that's a truism. And, and let like, me interject here. Can I interject for one second, <laughs> please? Uh, is Steve Alford 
they not they may not make the tournament now. <laughs> I don't know if you saw I know. yesterday. Brings they me got great three joy. losses in a row. They were safely in the tournament as of like ten days ago, and now they've got three consecutive losses. Uh, I don't know that they're going to make the tournament. This was kind of considered the season that he had to to do that to save his job. So. It's going to be interesting to see how things shake out for uh, Nevada and Steve Alford here in the next few days because uh, I, I just don't see them making the tournament at this point. Yeah, so in the last three games, just because uh, I like to enjoy this too, uh, Wyoming, they lost to, on the road, that's 9-22 and 22, Wyoming. Then they lost to 19-13 and 13 UNLV at home. <coughs> and then in the uh, opening round, quarterfinal round, whatever, of the Mountain West tournament, uh, they lost to San Jose State, 20-12. and 12. Um, so yeah, Nevada, very likely going to the NIT now, which is, uh, extremely funny. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, th- that was the thing for the longest time. And then it was also, uh, fans suck. They don't come to the games. Um, so not only do they have high expectations, they then don't come to the games. They really suck. Um, and Seth used to really like to hammer that point. And then in the middle of all that, he wrote the wooden book, which, I haven't read, um, but it just, you know, from what I understand, a lot of Sam Gilbert stuff in there, which, look, you know, it's got to be mentioned, but a lot of Sam Gilbert stuff in there, a lot of, um, you know, and I I think there's a contrarian response to the wooden thing where you're trying to poke at the hagiography, which is fine. Like, it's, it's all, you know, it's all worthwhile. It's just coming from that guy in particular, um, it's it's no wonder that you know a contingent of UCLA fans suspect some mendacity from him um, because it's just it's all kind of of a of a piece with a guy who you know went to Duke he's an East Coast guy you know just not not uh, not interested in uh, in uh, uh, engaging with UCLA honestly yeah so, I mean uh, yeah, sorry go, no, ahead. go ahead sorry no, no you I was go gonna ahead. say. Um, you know, it was really odd with that Arizona State home game. I, you know, they announced attendance at like 10,000 and change, and, and Seth was kind of ragging on the attendance, uh, uh, basically, I think, around tip-off. But I was at that game. I, I want to say it was closer to 12,000. There were only there were only like a scattered empty seats. And, and, and I will say they should have sold that game out. They should have sold their last, you know, four, six home games out as a tribute to these seniors who have given so much to the program. But it was a good crowd, and, you know, as a lot of media like to do, they'll take the shot of the crowd, you know, 15, 20 minutes before tip-off or see somebody else tweet it out, and that becomes a narrative of how crappy the fan base is. But, you know, that's just so unfair and such a cheap shot, and and it keeps happening. Um, You know, I'll rag on attendance when it's warranted. I mean, God, how many articles have I written about attendance at the Rose Bowl over the years? It's just, you know, it is pathetic. But, uh, you know, I just thought that was a little bit lazy. And and that was why I said, well, were you here? And what I meant by that was like, you know, you could see that this was a good crowd and it was pretty close to capacity. uh, But yet he wanted to just, you know, uh, repeat the narrative that was being circulated out there that I thought was a little bit untrue. Yeah, and that's uh, and you know it's a six p.m. game on a weeknight, um, so late arriving crowd is standard for that. Um, and yeah, I mean, should these games be selling out? Yes, I mean the the home games. I mean, home against Cal, I think was pretty close to a sellout, or it might have been. It uh, was a sellout, believe it or yeah. not, it was. So th- they should be selling out. Basically, if you've got a really good UCLA team, the standard for the longest time has been you sell out your January and February conference games. Are you going to sell out anything in December? Probably not, unless it's a marquee opponent. And that was an unfortunate reality this year, is that there wasn't a marquee non-conference home game. And something that probably they need to have at least one or two of those every year. Um, but uh, in the last month of the season, I mean... I would say this is based on my own understanding of the UCLA fan base. It was okay. It wasn't, it it wasn't probably what it should be. And it wasn't probably what it was in the, um, Oh six through Oh eight period where they had really good teams that you knew were really good coming into the season. Um, but selling out Cal when Cal's terrible selling out Arizona, nearly selling out ASU. That's okay. It's not great, but it's okay. Um, and that's just the UCLA fan base since time immemorial. I mean, that's not even uh, – you, you could go back into the 80s and you'll still see a lot of UCLA games that were not sold out um, in December. It's just the nature of the fan base. Um, but 
that's that's you know that's the the I will say this about your tweets to to our man Seth uh, Ben you you did it much more professionally um, from much more professional angles than uh, I necessarily did. Uh, in, <laughs> well, he in, didn't see any of yours, right? Well, so here's the funny thing. Um, so I tweeted at him some very insulting things early on. I wouldn't say very insulting. I would just say, um, uh, you know, I, I, I applied my snark liberally to to our man Seth, and he muted me. But then I continued um, because I was trying to test a, uh, test a theory, which is that when you mute somebody, you still are checking their tweets um, to see <laughs> what they are saying. And so I continued to tweet very similar things, and then within a week, he blocked me. So he had indeed continued to check my tweets after he muted me, which was, you know, important for me in some. Well, he unfollowed me. So that's uh, I, I guess, you know, I'm in the same queue. I'm just a little bit uh, behind you on that. Damn, you got unfollowed. Yeah. Wow. So he's not even willing to do his job anymore. And this is <laughs> so also you're like you're L.A. based, dude. And you've got the I mean, what are they? The number two team in the eight people right now? Yes. Yeah, number two team in the country. Has he been to a game this year besides in Vegas? Yeah, that was another funny thing. He was talking about, uh, oh, you know, we sent out this writer from Chicago to do a big story on UCLA, and I went to their game in Vegas, and I responded, yeah, you sat right next to me. (laughs) He obviously doesn't know who I am because he didn't remember that or or know me or acknowledge me or anything. And, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not like uh, a known quantity in the media business. But still, it's just – it is funny that, like, he can be – in this market with this team doing so well and not even just show up once just to check it out, right? I mean, I feel like that's – he's a national college basketball guy. Why wouldn't you want to see a team, uh, especially with these seniors, which is so rare uh, in this day and age of college basketball, playing at such a high level, uh, doing something really special? Uh, if, if I was in his shoes, I would absolutely have made a point to come to at least one game at Poly this year. And that's where I come back to him. My main word for him is probably just lazy. I think it's it's probably more than anything that's what it is. It's easier to sit on your couch. I mean, I know it for sure. Uh, it's easier to sit on your couch and watch the games than it is to go to the games. Um, and so I think for him, it's probably you know that's the 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 end all and be all. Um, all right, Ben, uh, w- what do you got coming for us? What's 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 on the docket uh, with uh, with Ben Bolch, L.A. Times uh, writer extraordinaire? Yeah, I got a couple of cool stories that I'm going to give some plugs to, and I appreciate you setting me up so nicely there. Um, yeah, uh, the first one is, I think, uh, uh, going to have some universal appeal beyond just the UCLA fan base. Uh, it's taking the Tyus Edney layup in 95, which everybody knows. In fact, CBS Sports tweeted it out again yesterday. I don't know if you saw that. It said basically Mar- March is here, and they tweeted out that, that, that play. Um, so, so I'm taking that kind of iconic moment and story, and I am telling it from the other side. I'm telling it from the perspective of the Missouri forward by the name of Derek Grimm, who Tyus shot over. And if you, uh, anybody who knows about that play knows that it was just such an amazing moment where Tyus is dashing up the court, doing the, the behind-the-back dribble, getting to the rim, and here comes the 6'9 guy with his arms straight up in the air, Playing pretty close to perfect defense, uh, except for he did not jump, and he didn't jump because he didn't want to foul him. So, you know, playing pretty much close to perfect defense, and then Tyus contorts his body, banks the ball high off the uh, backboard and through the front of the rim, and that's, you know, the greatest, uh, maybe the greatest, uh, most iconic moment in UCLA basketball history. Um, So I'm doing it from the perspective of the guy who was crushed and kind of the uh, Tagline for the story, so to speak, is March Sadness. Do you like, do you like that pun? I love it. Uh, and, and a couple of just quick, interesting tidbits about uh, that guy, Derek Grimm. Uh, you know, Missouri was actually a pretty good basketball program at that time. They'd been to the Elite Eight the year before. Uh, you know, they were an eight seed when when, uh, when UCLA beat them. But, I mean, man, they, they very well could have won that game. But at the point in me saying that was, that was Derek Grimm's final moment in the NCAA tournament. His last two seasons, Missouri did not go to the tournament. So that was the taste left in his mouth for his college basketball career. And he was a really good sport about taking me through, um, you know, the whole play, what it meant, how crushed he was, and, and kind of putting in context of his basketball career. So 
you know, I'm going to mention a bunch of other things like, you know, Adam Morrison and even Kiki Vandaway missing that layup in the game against Louisville, but really focusing on Derek Graham in that, in that one moment against Missouri uh, under the rubric of March sadness. Nice. And then, and then uh, my other story I'm excited about more UCLA centric is about your, your favorite Bruin. I don't know if I'm overstating that uh, Mr. David Singleton. Oh yeah, baby. Uh, Basically, it's not. Using, it's not called David Singleton Report Online for nothing. <laughs> I, love, I love it. Uh, so basically, you know, anybody who comes to games early sees him in the high puddle. Uh, you know, they'll they'll do their their kind of roar, their clapping, and then he's like kind of like bouncing between them uh, and and saying his little spiel about you know play hard, uh, want it more, and then he'll throw in something you know specific to either that day or that game or whatever pops into his mind, but. Really just him kind of setting the tone and being the leader on this team, uh, you know, and things like moments where he got in Adem Bonus face after that uh, uh, road moment in Washington where Adem looked like he was getting ready to punch somebody. Uh, getting, getting in Dylan Andrews' face after he got the technical on the road at Arizona State and then even getting on Mick Cronin after his technical, <laughs> uh, which, you know, takes a lot of guts for a player to basically say, hey, man, we need you. You know, don't get a technical. Don't get thrown out. So, uh, story just on what David's meant to the program with his leadership uh, and how he's kind of the tone setter for what they like to do in this great team chemistry. Awesome. Great stuff. And you could actually ask David Singleton a question for your March Sadness thing, because who did Suggs shoot that ball? That's over? right. Yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's called synergy, baby. I love it. Yeah, you just you just gave me something for my story. I really appreciate that. But here's the thing I would say about that. That was one of those things where, like, I think everybody just appreciated the run they had. And, yes, of course, they were crestfallen and heartbroken. Oh, yeah. But you could tell, like, they just, you know, they just had such appreciation for what they had done. That even though there was a lot of sadness, I think the, the the lingering feeling was just like I said, appreciation for what they had done, and, and everybody walked off that court with like, we did we did our absolute best. We we literally could not have given an ounce more of effort and energy and our heart to this game, and you know that's just what happened. Yeah, I'll I'll say like that was probably um, I, I would say. It was kind of shocking, the universal reaction to that game on our message board from the fans was almost entirely that, like, kind of appreciation. It was it was really rare, and I don't know how much of it was uh, the team itself not really having high expectations going into it because they were a first-four team, or coming out of the pandemic, I think everyone just kind of had a little bit of a, I'm just happy to be watching basketball and not thinking about, um, you know, the world being in flames. So this is kind of fun um, and making that kind of magical run at the same time. I think there was just kind of a general appreciation that, um, <laughs> you know, UCLA fan, for all that I just said, they don't have high expectations. They, they <laughs> Especially on the message board, uh, there's, there's enough people who still remember the wooden years uh, still posting on there that even when there's like a really good, you know, result, they make it to a final four. There's still some people who are like, not good enough. Uh, <laughs> are they ever going to win a title again? Uh, but after that game, it really didn't feel that way. There was, there was almost none of that. And I think it was to your point, just, you know, general appreciation for leaving it all out on the floor, playing, playing maybe their best game of the season and just falling a little bit short. Yeah. It's uh it, it, that that brings up the the funny story about uh, Wooden's last championship, where the, the story was that there was some booster that came up onto the court and said, "Hey, you know, great job! You you really let us down last year, but uh, you got him this time," <laughs> which is just insane that anybody would a think that and b tell that to Wooden after he'd won his last uh, <laughs> game and last national championship. But uh, my final aside, I know we're wrapping up here, but. Uh, you know, I equate. I, I'm a huge. Uh, I used to be a huge Major League Baseball fan. Not so much anymore. Same, same. But, uh, yeah, but uh, you know, I bring this up because uh, Mr. Hep Cronin, who's Mick's dad, obviously, who's uh, beloved by all UCLA fans um, for his fist pumps during the tournament uh, during that run to the Final Four. Um, you know, he was a scout for the Braves for 30 years, and I, I was lucky enough to have uh, breakfast with him and, and Dan Cronin, Mick's brother, yesterday morning. Um, and we got I got a lot of great uh, Braves and scouting stories. But the reason I bring it up was because the the UCLA Final Four team reminds me a lot of the '91 Atlanta Braves 
and I don't know if you remember that team and that storyline, but you know the Braves had just been so crappy for so long. Yeah. Hundred loss, hundred losses year after year. Bobby Cox comes in in '91. They go worst to first, get to that epic, my favorite World Series of all time against the Minnesota Twins. Only lose because Jack Morris throws ten incredible innings and maybe the best pitching performance of all time in Game Seven and lose. Uh, but uh, you know, the Braves went on and won the World Series four years la- later, but I know a lot of Braves fans, and we all, a lot of us think that the 91 team was actually our favorite team because they came out of nowhere, they gave it their absolute best, they got to Game 7, they could have won it, and uh, they just maximized their potential. I think that's that's the way to put it, maximize your potential and do the best you can. Yeah, I think it's always it's always uh, easiest and best and kind of most fun to to see an underdog do that. You know, for me, it was I mean, I was I, as everyone who had a TBS, um, you know, channel uh, growing up nationwide. I was a pseudo Braves fan for a long time, but I was, you know, much more of an Angels fan. And that 2002 team had a lot of the same feel to it, where it was just kind of they kind of came out of nowhere. They had no really good pitching, um, but they could hit the ball pretty well, um, and they had enough in a few spots. Their bullpen was really good that it was just kind of a magical season, and I think that's what UCLA had in 2021. Um, all right, Ben. Well, I'm going to let you get to your morning there in Las Vegas. There's nothing really to do there, so I know you're probably kind of bored out of your mind and you've got nothing else to do, but um, you know, I'm going to let you get to it, whatever it is that you're getting to. Uh, you can find him at the LA Times. Ben Bolch. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at L-A-T-B Bolch. Uh, he's the writer of 100 Things UCLA Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, which you can Love buy. It. You can buy in a variety of bookstores, but also on Triumph Books. The link is on his Twitter profile. Ben, thanks for having. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, this was awesome, David. Let me give one last shameless plug. I, I did a subscription drive on Twitter that I'll continue here. Anybody who buys a LA Times uh, online subscription and sends me the receipt uh, to my email, ben.bolch at latimes.com, I will send them, that, and I have to pay for these, by the way, so I hope it's not too many people, but I will send you an autographed copy of my book uh, and be very happy to do so. So, uh, you know, we're all about sustaining journalism uh, in this very challenging time, so Anybody who can help out, it's only a dollar for six months, and you get a free autograph book. I mean, you can't beat that uh, mailed straight to you. So, uh, so you're getting Dave, they, you're getting great features. You're getting get great features from Ben Bolch. You're getting assigned an autograph book, and you're supporting journalism. What's not to love? That's a win-win-win. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, Ben. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Dave. This was awesome. Hope to do it again sometime. Yeah, absolutely.